Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Ken the Provocateur, reading code using leaves of grass. You're blowing me away. Mm, I do like my poetry. Mm, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And uh, this week we have a bit of a treat for our listeners. Cam, what are we talking about? Yes, we are going to do a declassified review of the movie A Compassionate Spy, directed by documentarian Steve James, the man who is responsible for Hoop Dreams, which is often considered one of the all-time great documentaries, as well as the Roger Ebert documentary Life Itself. And um, we don't typically tackle documentaries very often on the show we did do an interview for sound of 007 but we haven't really done a review so this is a first for us uh, but perhaps scott you want to set this one up for sure and yeah if you want us to look at some more documentaries down the road do let us know but yeah we, we thought we'd try this one out and we were given a screener by the lovely folks at magnolia pictures so we've seen this ahead of time this episode is dropping on the day of release of the film it's basically coming out in select theaters worldwide and on vod as well so you should be able to find it basically just have a little google and you should be able to find it pretty easily but the actual story itself a compassionate spy i mean if you look at the imdb synopsis is basically one line but i think it actually does kind of tell you all you need to know the incredible story of manhattan project scientist ted hall who shared classified nuclear secrets with russia now to unpack that a little bit for those who don't know, the Manhattan Project is basically the U.S. coming up with the atomic bomb during World War II, uh, which is actually, funnily enough, running concurrently with Cam and I doing this, is spoken about quite a lot in the Oppenheimer film. That's right, and at the time of recording this, we are just coming off of the big Barbenheimer weekend, and uh, yeah, we both saw Oppenheimer. Yeah, which uh, we're not going to talk about that too much, but basically this is a real-life story of someone who worked in that Los Alamos site coming up with the two bombs that were dropped on Japan and who actually gave details to Russia and the fallout from that, if you pardon the pun. Mm -hmm. Now, Cam, this is, of course, as you mentioned, by Steve James, and we have a chat with him coming up in just a little bit. But I'm curious to hear from you, Cam. This is our first time talking about a documentary on the show. What did you think of A Compassionate Spy? I really enjoyed this documentary. I think it really helped actually seeing it right after Oppenheimer <laughs> for me. Yeah. It was like, oh my God, I have all the background information in my head just swirling about because of, you know, the Christopher Nolan film. And so like to see an alternate angle story regarding the Manhattan Project, I found it very involving. And I think this movie, we'll get to maybe more uh, in-depth thoughts in a little bit, but this one I think is going to be of great interest to people who... I'm not going to speak for people who are historian types mm -hmm. uh, who have really delved into this period because I am unclear myself as to how much of the material in this documentary they would already know. Sure. To me personally, I would recommend this to people who have maybe some interest in this time period and this project, just even given Oppenheimer, they may want to know more about this because this is a very intriguing spy espionage story tied to that particular period that is material you are not going to see in the Oppenheimer film. It is a completely, it's a sidequel, if you will, to the events mm. of that film. And um, I just found it to be a really interesting examination of how you can, you know, be an individual mm -hmm. who is smuggling secrets to the Russians and like the justifications for it and also how it kind of shapes the course of your life. 
Yeah, I, I think it, I, I definitely agree with you there. And in terms of my takeaway from it, I, I'm not someone who usually reaches for documentaries too much. I prefer sort of fictional stories if I'm going to feature length stuff. I mean, maybe like shorter documentaries on YouTube, that sort of thing, maybe I would go towards. Hey, what about books? Are you the same with books? Oh, I'm a fiction guy in books too. Okay. I, I struggle with like autobiographies and stuff. Hmm. But in terms of a compassionate spy, I, I really love what Steve James has done with this. There's a reason why he is Academy Award nominated. I, I love the way that he has worked in like old footage of sort of interviews with Ted Hall. But he's also done new interviews with his wife, Joan, other people that are involved in the case, people who have also researched the case as well. But he's also involved like um, he's got actors to reenact scenes to give you some idea of what it was like at the time, which is kind of why it worked for me quite well with Oppenheimer because it felt like I was just back in that same universe I'd just spent three hours with Christopher Nolan in. No, I really enjoyed this one, Cam. And I think before we sort of take it apart anymore, let's go straight to Steve James himself. He can tell us all about how we got a compassionate spy. Cam, roll it. And joining us now on the show, the director of this week's film, A Compassionate Spy, it's Mr. Steve James. Hello, sir. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm doing not too bad. Looking forward to talking to you about this film. And I think um, I'll lead us off with sort of the, the big question for you is sort of what what inspired you to want to tell this story, looking through your history of making documentaries? What is it about this story that made you want to bring you know a feature film version of it? Yeah, this is a bit of a departure for most of the work I've done. Um, <clears throat> but I heard about Ted Hall from... The one of the producers on this film, Dave Lindorf, who uh, has a fascination with this part of, of world history, and he had met Joan Hall, Ted's surviving wife, uh, and he just said, I think there's a really incredible story here that deserves a film. And so I read about it and talked to Dave about it. And then we went and interviewed Joan for three or four days in Cambridge, England. And based on that, I thought this is an important story to tell. And, and I think it's because it's an unknown story. Uh, even if you watch Oppenheimer, which I did this weekend, um, there's no mention of Ted Hall. <laughs> um, there's definitely not. No. And, and what Ted did was quite extraordinary, whether you agree with what he did or not, it was an extraordinary act. Uh, that he took at an extremely young age. He was only 19 years old when he started to pass secrets to the Soviets. Well, it was definitely quite the gamble on his part to you know to do what he thought was the right thing. And you know, history, I guess, is the judge in that in that circumstance and what happened. But um, I guess then moving on to the, you sort of backed me from the next question, which is Joan. Of course, you said you got in contact with her and you filmed. Uh, quite a bit, which I guess ended up in the actual documentary itself. But what was the process of getting in contact with Joan like, and what was her involvement in the actual film itself? Yeah, so so Dave had struck up a friendship with Joan because he had written a, <clears throat> an article that she read and reached out to him to thank him for it. So they had struck up a friendship, and then um, and then we arranged for me to go and. Dave went along on that trip and we, we met and interviewed Joan across three days. Mm. And I was just really taken, I was taken with Joan, her brilliance, uh, her ability as a storyteller, the stories she was telling. I was also taken with this sort of, it was a love story. I mean, to me, this film is very much about the espionage, but it's also very much about a relationship uh, between these two people 
who were quite young when they met and married <clears throat> and and the way in which Joan sort of helped Ted through all those years to both live a regular life, but also evade capture. Um, and so I, I just felt like it was really important to tell the story. And then when I found out that there was, there was videotape of, from several sources of Ted before he passed away in the 90s, talking candidly about what he had done, then I thought, okay, we can really make a film about this. Yeah, you've got quite a lot of, uh, there's a couple of documentaries I think you've pulled from or or TV shows I think you've got some footage from for Ted, which I think is very valuable to the documentary itself. But one thing that jumped out to me and you just touched on it there is the relationship between Ted and Joan. They've got, I mean, anyone who's in a marriage or a relationship should be aspiring to their relationship because she (laughs) she stood by him through thick and thin. And everyone needs a Joan in their life, I would say. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and you know, she saved him from himself Mm. on at least two occasions, you know, when the, when the Rosenbergs, uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were on trial and which was a huge, huge international story for espionage connected, connected to the bomb. Um, you know, Ted, Ted, as we indicate in the film, Ted, went to Joan and he said, I want to go confess what I did because what I did was much more consequential than what Julius Rosenberg did. And maybe I could save them. And she said, there's no way you'll save them. You will only um, get me and you executed along with them. <clears throat> and she was absolutely right about that. And so there were, there were several points along the way where she helped him navigate it and and make decisions that were, were at least in their best interest uh, in terms of this. Well, then, yeah, you've got uh, you've got the story now, and you've you've got this footage with Joan. You've got this, uh, you know, three days worth of interviews. What is your process for putting together this documentary, and and does that sort of fit the general process you've done in the past, or was this one different, perhaps? Well, this is very different. I mean, most of the films that I've done, I mean, I've done different kinds of films, so sure. it's not like I've made only one kind of documentary, but most of the work that I've done tends to be in the more observational cinema verite mode where I follow people around, uh, you know, until they get sick of me. And, um, and in this case, uh, this was a very much a historical story and, and, and driven by, um, this primary interview with Joan and the, uh, and the archival interviews with Ted, but I was determined to make it as personal as possible. Um, I wanted it to be a personal story. I didn't want it to be history writ large, although it, it, it is impacted in that way. And, and I didn't want a ton of experts in the film. I knew that I would probably need a few to give credence to Joan and Ted's views and why Ted acted the way he did. But I didn't want to turn this into a kind of, you know, analytical, um, you know, uh, didactic piece about, about a piece of history. And so I, I, I really wanted to keep it in that personal mode, which I think we su- succeeded in doing. I, I, I definitely think you did. And, and we also did one other thing that I've not done in a documentary before. I have done some scripted narrative work. It's been a while, but we, we did some recreations of young Joan and Ted mm-hmm. back both when Ted was, uh, acting as a spy and also in the early years of their marriage where when he met Joan and they were evading the FBI. <clears throat> and I felt like it was important to bring those 
that part of their life to light and 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 bring it to the screen in a way that could only be done with free creations because there was no archival and very few photographs to lean on because i wanted to i wanted audiences to see them as young people who were so in many ways very idealistic and committed to their causes uh which is something i think a lot of young people today can can recognize and identify with given the precipitous place we find ourselves uh, in the world today. Well, you know, I was going to ask about having the sort of the, the actor step in. At what point during your production and getting the film made did you decide you wanted to have actors come in and do these sort of reenactments of their life leading up to that point? And, uh, you know, how about you know, casting them as well? Was that a long process of finding the actors to do it? Yeah, so I decided pretty early on after that initial interview with Joan, that extensive interview, I I remember saying to my colleagues that I, you know, I think we may want to re- really consider doing some recreations, reenactments here because, you know, a lot of times in in historical archival driven films, um first of all, it's not uncommon to do that. Number one, but secondly, usually when you find archival that can that can visualize these things it's usually a cheat in a way it's not it's not the actual people or the actual incidents but it it's plausible enough that it can sort of be visually representative of what's being told but in this case there was no way to find anything that could possibly suffice in that way these stories were too specific and too personal and 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 so I warmed the idea that that this would be a great way to do it and and an exciting way to do it and and I think a better way for audiences to do it. I think it definitely works in the film. I think it gives both Ted and Joan sort of a a bit of grounding because it, it, you know this can seem all a bit a bit far for some people. You know this the entire Manhattan Project. Uh, so many people now are. are beyond the point of even knowing what that is. I mean, Oppenheimer's bringing that back into modern conversations. But, you know, people don't... The people who were alive during World War II, very small in number now. Very much so. Yeah, no, I think because of Oppenheimer, especially, uh, this issue is enjoying... Well, I don't know if enjoy is the right mm. word, but it, but it's... it's, an, it's there, there is a resurgent interest. I think that interest is also governed, frankly, by... The fact that, you know, we find ourselves in, in a situation today where, you know, climate change is, is a serious threat to mm-hmm. the world. Um, I think just in the last few months, the emergence of AI and, and the concerns about whether that will be some kind of threat to humanity. All of these things, I think, feed uh a desire to sort of see what history has to offer us in terms of lessons. And then that, on top of that, you have China now um, is really moving in a big way into the building and acquiring of nuclear arsenal. And that's something they have not done until recently. And now they seem to be uh, wanting to be a third superpower in the, in the nuclear sphere, which is, which is incredibly potentially destabilizing. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not exactly a warm blanket at bedtime, is it? That sort of stuff. <laughs> no, no, we've got our hands full. Indeed, indeed. And speaking of uh, having your hands full and, and maybe running into trouble, but when you were putting this documentary together, was there any any issues that came up along the way? Anything, any sort of obstacles you had to overcome? 
no, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think the hardest part was, um, in some ways, the hardest part was, um, was I wanted to, to tell Savvy Sachs's story too. Savvy mm-hmm. being Ted's best friend and the person who collaborated with him in terms of getting the secrets to the, to the Soviets. Um, but Savi died long ago and there's not much of a record of him. And so I had to kind of win over his, his son and daughter, um, to be interviewed. And that took a little while to do because, you know, it, they had a, a very sort of tumultuous childhood around what Savi had done. Sure. Um, much more so I think than, than, um, Ted and Jones kids did. And, and so there was some reluctance to kind of revisit all this, but I was able to, con- <clears throat> to convince them that, that this, this, this story was important and that what Savi did was something that, you know, what, again, whether you, whether you condone what he did or not, he, he did it, I think for, um, for the right reasons, uh, in his mind and, uh, and that, that it was an important story to tell and, and thank goodness that they became a part of the film. No, I think that's uh, maybe another story that deserves its own documentary, further exploration of, of that man's life, because it's a it's a very fascinating one as well to dive into. I've been reading about him today, post this, but like you said, there's not a lot out there, really, to dive into. <clears throat> there's not. Um, now, I suppose then my next question would be, you know, looking at the, the process of making this, was there any any elements of the story that you didn't get time to explore? I think that's kind of basically what we just discussed, but was there anything else you didn't get time to explore in the documentary that you would like to had had you had more time or more opportunity? Well, I, you know, I, I would have loved to have spent a bit more time on Ted's uh, childhood growing up mm-hmm. and, and his relationship with his brother, Ed, who we haven't mentioned, um, you know, Ed, Ed was 11 years older than Ted and, and, uh, you know, he factors into Ted's story in a remarkable way. Mm. It's such a remarkable part of the story. It's the kind of thing that, you know, if, if we were making the Hollywood version of this movie and you, you had Ted, the older brother's story in there, the way it really happened, most people would be throwing up their hands and saying, Oh, come on, they're making this up. But Ted, you know, Ted, uh, Ted's older brother, Ed, was a engineering genius and he was in the Air Force and he was he was a central part of the building of the missile program by the Air Force that became the anti-ballistic missile program, which carried nuclear warheads eventually. And um, and so these were two brilliant young, brilliant men from the same family. Uh, and so I would have loved to have explored that a bit more. I would have loved to have given people even more of a sense. Uh, I mean, I think I do it, but I would have loved to have given people even more of a sense of the, the, the degree and the efforts that the U S government went to, to paint the Soviet union as a beautiful and wonderful ally during the war. Um, you know, we have this one section in the film where we feature, uh, parts of this film called mission to Moscow, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I encourage you to watch the entire film. It's it's an incredible film. I would have, you know, at one point in my editing, I had considerably more of it in there. And my colleagues were saying, look, we can't show this much of Mission to Moscow. But, but there were several films that were made. Frank Capra, the famous American filmmaker, made two films 
that's that sang the praises in this beautiful Frank Capra-esque way of, of life in the Soviet Union um, and, and what a wonderful place. And so I think a lot of Americans in particular are completely unaware of the ways in which the Soviet Union was even an ally during the war, much less the, the degree to which Roosevelt went to try uh, to endear them to the American people. Well, I think you you, you weave uh, the uh, Curtis film in, in beautifully. I actually wasn't aware of the film until you pointed out in the documentary, and also the, the the strangeness of the family connection with the brothers and how their lives are connected without them really knowing about one developing the ICBM and one developing or being part of the team that developed what is now known as a you know an atom bomb. It's crazy that they're sort of connected without knowing. Yeah, and as we tell in the story. <clears throat> Once the FBI got on to Ted and and tried to get him to confess, they went to his brother Ed and they tried to use his brother Ed to get Ted to confess, mm-hmm. even even going far enough to uh, even sort of threaten uh, Ed's career in the Air Force if he didn't if he didn't turn Ted in. And of course, when they first went to to Ed, he had no idea what Ted had done. No. Um, but then he, uh, <laughs> but then he, um, he when he did find out from Ted what he'd done, he held fast and never turned him in because of his love for his brother. No, absolutely. And I suppose one of the final questions I had about the documentary, because I know our, our time is brief, um, was there any sort of revelation you you had along the way of making this documentary? Any sort of bit of information you found during your research that really just sort of knocked you back? Well, yeah, I, I knew, I knew, you know, some of the history of of the bomb in World War II before I dove into it more deeply. But the 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 one thing that I was unaware of, and I knew there was real debate about whether the U.S. really needed to drop the bombs on Japan mm. to get them to surrender. I knew that. What I didn't know and learned in this documentary, among many things, was the way in which the U.S. government um, at first. Uh, when they calculated the cost of a of an invasion of Japan, they calculated it as twenty thousand American soldiers might lose their lives, which is you know an enormous loss. Mm. I in no way don't, don't mean to belittle that, but then when the numbers started coming in of how many people had died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then they kept revising the numbers up because they wanted to maintain a kind of moral high ground that what we had done had saved more lives than it had destroyed. And that, in fact, wasn't the case. And there's, you know, the more I dug into it, the more I came to realize, you know, that there was strong feelings, even within the U.S. military, of the desire that we not drop the bomb on Japan, that Japan would surrender without dropping the bomb. So there was a lot of things I was unaware of. Well, the, the last question I've, I've got for you, Steve, before we let you go, and this question has been asked to everyone who's ever been on the show, directors, cinematographers, actors, the whole bunch. Steve James, what is your favorite spy movie of all time? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I wish you I wish you had... Um... There's no prep here. We like to throw you right in the deep end. Yeah, you really do. Favorite spy movie. God. Um, uh... Well, you know, I mean, I don't think it's a great, great movie in a sense, but I love, I love its significance. The, the Manchurian Candidate does mm-hmm. that qualify? Absolutely, both versions. Uh, 
Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I think that's a pretty great film, partly for, for its, uh, you know, historical and, and film history significance. Um, so I like that a lot. I'll tell you, uh, I, I, I'm going to cheat and say, uh, <laughs> slow, slow, slow house, the, 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 uh, British series. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's on now. I on Apple TV. Yeah. With Gary Oldman. Yeah. I love that series. <laughs> Wonderful series. Hilarious as well. Yes. Hilarious. Well, um, you know, people saying about Barbenheimer, I'd say forget that. I think Compassionheimer is where I'm at when it comes to double bills. So, uh, <laughs> I love that. Love that. Perfect. That, that gets my vote for me. Yeah. Compassionate Spy is available now, everyone. Steve James, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. That was Mr. Steve James. I want to thank Steve once again for taking the time to speak with me. And again, thank Magnolia Pictures for help putting that interview together. Hope you all enjoyed it. But Cam, let's go back to it. Let's take a compassionate spy apart a little bit. As I said to Steve in, in the interview, I think one of the things that this does so well is you know, having the actors in to give you sort of an idea of what it was actually like on in reality what was going on because i think it could be quite dry just having these sort of talking head interviews in documentaries having the actors actually act out scenes i think really sort of spices up and gives it a bit more of an energy to it i was a little more mixed on the recreations um i think they're they're used sparingly enough here i think that they didn't bother Mm -hmm. me too much but i tend to find with recreations it they make it feel too cinematic sure where it's it's people talking about something that's very real and these ones weren't they weren't my favorite but they didn't completely pull me out of the movie mm-hmm. um but like i can understand the reasoning for them um i just tend to find when it's recreations you are rarely getting um what i would call really well calibrated dramatic performances it tends to feel a little bit almost like a history comes alive special you might see in social studies class mm mm-hmm. mhm um, to me, this movie really came to life more so because of the primary narrator of the movie, which is Joan Hall, Ted's wife. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of archive footage, as you said, of Ted Hall throughout the movie. So we have his input on much of the events that took place over the course of his life. But like, sure. this movie to me, I think, had two things that made it very interesting. Because I think on paper you go, this movie's about Ted Hall. And, you know taking part in the Manhattan Project, and then smuggling these secrets to the Russians. That's kind of the core of what this movie is about. In some ways, yeah, that is kind of the plot of the documentary. Mm -hmm. But really, this movie is, I think, to me, like two things. It's like a testament to a marriage, to two people who were married for a very long time, and how they were kind of these pillars of strength for each other. There's a lot of moments where he's thinking about giving himself up because of guilt, Or, you know, this is also the time the Rosenbergs are going to be executed for being spies and how he's considering turning himself in to try to help them in some way. And the fact that she is the one that is often the one kind of keeping him on the straight and narrow in terms of, no, we need to focus just on preserving our own lives and moving forward. And I think she's invaluable in helping us understand specifically what their politics were, Mm -hmm. what they were trying to do, and maybe like where they fell short, like what they didn't quite understand at the time that would affect the way they would maybe make that decision now. 
I got a real sense of kind of the psychological journey the two of them had been through because of her. She was such a great narrator. Yeah, I, I think Steve made a very good choice early on by really focusing it around her input. And I think, and I said this to to Steve, I, I think we all need a Joan in our lives. Mm, yeah. Because she is a champion for Ted. Yeah. Throughout this entire time, she completely gets where he come, is coming from and supports him all the way through. And I, I just think that was really nice to sort of watch and, and observe because, you know, a lot of one thing I think this film could have easily done and it didn't, and I credit it for not doing it, is having a pile on of Ted Hall. Yeah. Because, you know, on paper, he betrayed his country. Now, his morals and the reasons he did so are his own to choose and his own to live with and for us i suppose to judge or for history to judge but it could have easily have like had other talking heads talking about the damage he did to america or whatever but it was chosen to be very much a this is what he did this is why he did it and now you make your choice as a viewer you decide really if it was worth it or not yeah and a lot of his justification is kind of like the material you'll see in oppenheimer about mm -hmm. kind of the fear of America as this great capitalist power and not kind of creating cordial relationships with other countries and why Russia should have the right to have this information mm. to lead to a more balanced, you know, coexistence. And, well, I mean, things turned out kind of messy <laughs> sure. with the Cold War and all, but you can understand the way he explains the situation and the way that Joan breaks down the fact that they were very progressive people mm -hmm. and at that time kind of a more socialist or communist approach was more progressive in helping you know minorities and women than what they were seeing in the more capitalist approach and so like mm -hmm. i could understand every single step of the way where they were coming from would it be the decision i would make probably not but I'm a very cowardly person who would be entirely concerned about my own skin at every step of the way. These were people who, this kind of comes to something else this movie is about that I thought was really interesting. This movie is about how young people really can change the world. Young people mm. have a somewhat fearlessness and an ability to really change things because these were, you know, like late teenagers, early 20s when they are taking part in these acts. And the fact was they believed in a cause and they really did affect how, you know, history would be played out. And that is something you will not see as much with people as they get older because they get more settled in their lives. They become more fearful because maybe they have, you know, children, they have established careers. But when you're young, you have this like drive to try to affect political change. And I found this movie so interesting in the way it didn't judge them. It, did, it never portrayed it as... These young, stupid kids made this mistake. Yep. It was entirely about how these two very politically active students, um, because, you know, it's not just, you know, Ted Hall, but it's also his friend, Saville Sachs, um, mm -hmm. committing this kind of act of espionage. But it's very much about, like, how young people do this, like, why they are driven to do it, and how they kind of are able to without really being suspected. I mean, Scott, did this remind you perhaps of another movie we watched? Ah, well, now you say that. Are you talking perhaps of a Jean Le Carre adaptation? No, 
I am not, oh. but I'm curious which one you're thinking of. I'm thinking of the little drummer girl. Interesting. That is actually a great parallel. I was thinking of the Falcon and the Snowman. Ah. Both kind of work, actually. Yeah. The impressionability of youth. Yeah. And, you know, you look at Falcon and the Snowman, it's like two young men who decide mm-hmm. to start smuggling CIA secrets to the Russians. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, like, no one would ever look at these guys, right? There's no Shredder uh, Mojitos, though, or whatever it was. Shredder. Um margaritas no and a lot less falcon taming yes yes uh no, no falcon helmets in this film <laughs> no no i oh, i missed that film um well, one thing i wanted to uh bring up as well is something this film just a, it's just a brief moment but they bring up sort of the atrocities that are caused by the bombs yeah and how they have to live with that and hearing the news about the bombs dropping, it's something again. We're going to keep mentioning Oppenheimer, folks. It is very much in the in the you know in the water or whatever you would say at this point because it's literally in theaters this week. It's impossible not to have seen that movie and then watch yeah. this movie and separate the two in a way. Yeah, it, they're interconnected, but that's fine because they're of the same era, story, t- point in time. So that that's absolutely fine. But like Oppenheimer doesn't do much in terms of really selling you on the horror of what happened. Yeah. Because it almost is trying to keep you away from it. So you could sort of just see how Oppenheimer's dealing with it all. Whereas this actually this documentary really does show you some really horrible images of what actually happens. And I've seen a lot of these before just from from watching documentaries, funnily enough, in the past about war. But They've put in at the right time to make you just feel the gravity and remind you of the gravity of what they're playing with here, because these could seem like little little bits of information that he that Ted Hall has given to the Russians, but the power that this data, this information has, is I mean, you can see it in the images, but it it's world changing. Yeah, and when he talks about his experience of just post bomb test, mm. where everyone is celebrating and that's something you actually see in Oppenheimer that scene yeah um yeah how he just went off by himself and was just listening to music and realized kind of the horror they had created and like you really get the sense that like from that moment forward he was genuinely scared for his country and what they had created I mean it's not something that either you nor I and there is an age difference in the both of us but not by much that we've ever really had to deal with nope like this is that particular moment in time, and I, I understand the sort of rah-rah, sis-boom-rah of, you know, defeating the Nazis and what they did to do that and defeating the Japanese, da 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 But it's hard to, like, for us now to grasp just how important these decisions were. And I and this documentary does a very good um, job of saying to you that what he has done is potentially world-changing and could be either good or bad. Mm. Whereas, you know, I, I don't think someone, you know, a particular nation downloading someone's TikTok history hmm. isn't going to necessarily make a difference that, that this difference was made. You know what I mean? Like, it's not quite the same scale. And I appreciated that they kind of point out that they were misguided. Mm-hmm. They didn't really think about what Lenin was actually doing. They saw him as a much more um, sympathetic ally, potentially, 
than someone who had a lot of skeletons in his closet and was doing a lot of very bad things. They they were kind of looking past that, which to me kind of goes back to the idea of like these youthful activists mm-hmm. who are, you know, striving for something without kind of seeing the full picture. And history paints that picture later as well, right? Like this movie is very good, I think, at giving you the sense of immediacy of their journey step by step. Like why they were making mm-hmm. this decision when they do not have any of the benefit of sitting where we are now and knowing the way that history has played out, they are just in this moment dealing with life-changing occurrences. You know, the creation of the A-bomb, the dropping of the bomb on Japan, or the two bombs, and having to kind of make decisions in these moments based on what is going on and being very driven to act on it as opposed to just be reactive. Because I imagine that like, in their minds, people couldn't necessarily see what was actually happening. And like the power that was being given to America, so I can understand their point of view of like wanting to make everything equal at least. And what I thought was really interesting was in the archive interviews we see with Ted Hall throughout the film, you really get the sense this is not a decision that he views flippantly, no, and that over the course of his life is always kind of in the back of his head. Like I didn't get the sense by you know, the later passages of the movie that even he was 100% confident that he was particularly proud of the decision. Like, it seemed like he was still weighing whether he should have done it, even at the end of his life. Well, yeah, because he was, like, offering to give himself up yeah, to commute the sentences of those two that were executed for espionage, who'd done far less. Mm-hmm. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Attention, spy hards, die hards. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a hidden moon base. We're putting out the call for your support. That's right. The Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and the debrief where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Now is a perfect time to catch up with our July programming that we released on the Patreon. I'm talking about reviews of A Shot in the Dark and Children of Men, as well as The Debrief, where we reviewed Oppenheimer, Secret Invasion, and talked about so much more. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyheart. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. Um, another thing I just wanted to bring up was another thing this documentary did well in terms of actually selling the reality, and that is the sort of red scare. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not going to get into my own personal politics, in this episode but i think like if you showed any sort of outside of the normal you know what is what is approved politics in those days you were in for a scary life yeah and the movie touches on that where they had like the fbi digging through their stuff and they are kind of an extreme case where it's like people Mm -hmm. suspected of espionage of course the fbi are going to be all over them but there was a lot of people who had gone to like, I don't know, like a communist meeting at some point who had the FBI all over them. Mm-hmm. This was not an uncommon thing in this era. And the idea of Big Brother is ready to pounce at any time would create such like a intense sense of fear 
that I can also understand why, you know, in kind of the wake of having committed this act of espionage, you would feel like you might have done the right thing because America is going to a very scary place with the Red Scare, where you're Mm -hmm. constantly kind of under the shroud of this, like, just sense of danger and sense of being, you know, in trouble with the government just for engaging in some exploratory university activities. Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, this stuff does exist now, in a sense. If you look at, say, like people's social media, yeah, and how that can really stay with you. And you or I are of a generation where we had like Friendster and MySpace and MSN Messenger. High five! Don't forget high five. A high five, of course, of course, of course. You you were on the Facebook when I had a thought. <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that like that can now be used against you in like job applications and stuff like that. But that this is obviously a much smaller scale. You know, as you say, like in university, this is a time when you're meant to be exploring the world and and you know exposing yourself to different thoughts and uh, processes and different opportunities. And to have that completely derail your entire life as you went to one meeting is 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 astounding. But that's that was the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there was one thing I had in terms of criticisms of the documentary, things I would have liked to have seen maybe fleshed out more, it was the friend, Savvy, who is set up as pretty instrumental in assisting in the espionage. We get a sense there was kind of like a kind of a little bit of a romantic triangle when they were in school together between, you know, Joan, Ted, and Savvy, and she ultimately chose Ted and married him. But because there was no footage of Savvy, and we really just have his children giving commentary, it feels a little incomplete. Like, I wanted a better sense as to who he was and where he was coming from. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, when it comes right down to it, how much of a sense are your kids really going to have at explaining your decision-making during this very, um, you know, impressionable, youthful period of your life? Probably not that great. Probably not. And obviously, I I had the interview with Steve James earlier, which you haven't quite heard yet at the time of recording. But that was something that Steve would have liked to have improved as well, had there been more of an opportunity. He got his kids involved late into the proceedings. Right. Um, So he got what he could there. But there's not that much in terms of background information on the friend or anything like that. So it, it he wanted to do more, but he was bound by what was there. Yeah, it just feels like he's such a crucial ingredient sure that you want to understand what his journey through life was and you get some conjecture from the son mm-hmm. saying his father never really felt like he lived up to what ted had achieved in life because ted was a very successful you know scientist um very accomplished over the course of his life but you just want to sense as to like what savvy was doing because i never had a good I- real understanding as to what this man even did through over the course of his life no and i think that's just it's not out there to discuss. I think that's probably more of the issue with that. And I, I totally get that. And, 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 you know, even Steve has said that's something he would like to have expanded upon. Yeah. The only note I had, um, it's not a detriment. I mean, I think this one really works for me, folks. If you, if you like learning about history of, of the war or the beginnings of the cold war, um, I can see our friend Ian at cold war conversations, loving this documentary, for instance, and, and his listeners would probably love that too. Uh, this is one for you, I would say. Uh, I would say pick it up. I was just going to say, though, it is interesting that the whole family between Ted and also his brother, uh, Edward, uh, so crucially involved in the creation of the atomic bomb 
and also creation of the intercontinental ballistic missile. That family is genius level. Yeah, no kidding, right? And also, anyone who saw Oppenheimer will have spent a lot of time with Matt Damon's character. Mm-hmm. And uh, he plays a very significant role in some of the earlier events of this film. So it was interesting just to flesh out that individual's personality as well. Yeah. In kind of the real world versus the kind of the dramatized um, Oppenheimer version. Yeah, which is yeah, which is why I said I know people are doing the Barbie Oppenheimer double bill, but hey... I think A Compassionate Spy is the better Oppenheimer follow-up. Yeah, no kidding. And I would say this movie, I agree, like this is one I think people will find entertaining and engaging, but mm-hmm. also it's very digestible. And that's something that yeah. can often hold people a little bit at arm's length with documentaries, especially when they get very dense, that you kind of go like, oh, like, is this the sort of thing where I'm going to be having to take notes basically while I'm watching the movie? Is this going to sure. feel like I'm in a lecture hall at a university and I'm going to be tested on it later on? No, it is a very watchable, engaging documentary with, as we said, Joan is a fantastic narrator and storyteller. So you really feel like you're in very confident hands, both from her as well as Steve James throughout the course of the movie. And uh, I think it's definitely worth checking out. And it's going to be out there, folks. Absolutely. And I think for me, I, I would have trouble and do have trouble with more of the analytical, factual documentaries. Having Joan is very much the human element in this. And that's what guided me through. So that's why it gets my thumbs up, I would say. But there you go. That was our chat on A Compassionate Spy. It's available now as this episode is live. So catch it, folks, if you can. For sure, yes. Uh, But Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What are we doing next week? Well, Scott, um, we are not traveling down a similar road with the next episode. We are celebrating our third birthday. And... We are going to be looking at 2001's Cats and Dogs. What happens when super spy cats take on super spy dogs? We're going to find out. I mean, we've been doing this cam for three years now. Can you believe it? I still can't. And what a better way. I couldn't think of one to celebrate than to talk about cats and dogs. It is the most spy hard's way of celebrating that's right. Last year, we celebrated our 100th episode with Spy Hard. And I mm-hmm. think Cats and Dogs makes a great third anniversary marker. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to get your paws into Cats and Dogs. And join us next week for our third birthday bonanza. And if you like what you heard on this declassified episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you're listening and tell your friends, because that helps. And of course... Do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, I'll be off for a Compassionheimer double bill. (laughs) 